Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. We're in a series entitled Pursuing God, and today we're going to begin talking about righteousness. Righteousness, part one, the grace of conviction. The grace of conviction. As we think about today's message or kind of get our minds oriented in a way, have you ever been right on the edge of something really exciting only to have a major setback occur? You know, you think about little league ball players and they spend all day getting ready, getting suited up and, and pumped up about the game and then that thunderstorm moves through late afternoon and the game gets rained out and man, life is over. You know, the night is ruined. I remember I was nine or 10 years old and um, I'm gonna apologize for all of you under age 45. I'm gonna talk about a little bit of glory from back in the day here. But uh, uh, you can do some Google on it later and figure out it was true glory. Our family was getting ready for a family vacation. And family vacation meant that we had to load up the Grand Torino station wagon. Friends, they don't build glory like this anymore. Grand Torino station wagons were about 42 feet long. They were the predecessor to the RV. They had a front seat that was larger than most car cabins today, a back seat that was equally as large, and then they had a condo behind the back seat. And in the condo were what we called hop seats, two seats that flipped up this way. I always wondered as a kid, why did they put those seats so far in the back? And then I had kids, and we took vacations. And I realized, kids, you're sitting in the back. So mama and I can have some peace and quiet in the front, right? Here we were. We were getting it loaded. I mean, Chevy Chase has nothing on the Grand Torino loaded down for the Harrison family vacation. And then my dad walks through the front door and says, water pump's gone out. I don't know what a water pump is. Let's just get it replaced and not mess the day up, right? But evidently on a Grand Torino station wagon, water pump was pretty important. So four deacons later and a couple of shade tree mechanics and a few trips to the uh, uh, auto parts store. Fortunately, there's no shortage of those in the small towns that I grew up in. Um, We're five hours late, but we're still headed on vacation. I mean, I don't know how I made it because the adrenaline rush just prior to leaving was so high, it's a wonder my parents didn't tie me up in the pantry and just leave me for the week, you know. Uh, I'm sure I was inconsolable and unbearable. But when we finally got ready to leave, it felt like it had taken forever. So much excitement. But first, a serious issue had to be dealt with. You know, what we've looked at in the study of Ezra is he's recorded so much good about what God has done among his people and and the missional advancement of the people returning to Jerusalem and reestablishing 
there. God sovereignly glorifies his name by, by providing for his people to leave Babylon and, and to return to their land that he had given them. He unites the people in worship and centers them around his word. And even when opposition to the mission arises, it stops them for a time, but not ultimately, because God's word awakens them to the mission of God's kingdom and they re-engage the work and God strengthens them to continue walking in faithful obedience. But when we come to chapters 9 and 10, it seems that the missional momentum of the people comes to a hard stop, or at least so it seems. For chapters 9 and 10, they tell us of one episode. I'm breaking them into two uh, just so we can give better consideration to them. But it tells us of God continuing to lead his people on mission in righteousness. And what I want us to see today is that God brings gracious conviction to confront sin and lead his people to confession for the glory of his name in redemption. So let me do this. I'm going to work through the bulk of the chapter today in the message, but I want to begin by reading the first two verses and then we'll continue with the sermon. Ezra chapter 9 verse 1 says, After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations. And then they list those peoples of the lands. Verse 2 continues, For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Just when everything seems to be working and the momentum is building, something breaks. Or, as would actually be more appropriate and accurate to say, something broken gets revealed. The people of God have remained in their sinful disobedience to God. Ezra told the Israelites, is told that they have intermarried with the people of the land. And verse 2 provides a list of those people. And here's what we learn from that list of people. Here's why it's so important for that list to be here. These are not just some of the peoples that have recently arisen in this intermarriage. But what is transpiring here in verse 1 by this list of people is an echoing of the list of people before they cross the Jordan River into the promised land of God identifying the people who were living in the land who were pagans that didn't worship God. And the first thing God told them was, do not mix with those people because when you mix with them, their worship will become your worship and you will cease to obey me. God had forbidden them to intermarry since they were entering into the promised land. Now let me, let me clarify what the problem is for us here. This will be important next week as well. The problem is not a racial nor an ethnic prejudice against any particular people. That's very important for us to understand here today. The Old Testament never forbids marriage based solely on race, on ethnicity, nor on nationality. As a matter of fact, it not only doesn't forbid it, it demonstrates the glory of God's name in it. 
I say this and I give you one example that may be one of the most notable ones, Ruth and Boaz. They were a marriage of two different ethnicities and from them King David descended who was ultimately the greatest king in God's kingdom in the Old Testament. And it proves God's blessing that was upon that marriage when it was done according to God's command. The whole book of Ruth is about that story. The problem here, rather, is about a purity of religion, a purity of worship. And when I use the word religion there, I mean it in the best sense. It's a purity of worship. They were not committed to obey God as their first priority in their most important relationship of life. This is the problem that Ezra is identifying. The Israelites were commanded to marry within their spiritual clan. In other words, people who were true worshipers of God. Because these were the people who were set apart for God, but had not separated themselves in obedience to God. And so what we're dealing with here is God's people who are not living true to their identity but they intermarried and defiled the purity of their worship. Now, I'll also say this. We see in numerous places where people from other ethnicities, other nations, and if you will, races actually do intermarry and are welcomed in. Why? Because they become worshipers of God. The problem is, or excuse me, the, the, the issue that, that God is getting at here is the purity of their hearts in worship to God and not having a divided heart in trying to honor multiple gods in their homes. And so Ezra's response demonstrates the seriousness of the sin. Verses three and four, he tears his clothes and pulls his hair out. This is a very common practice in severe acts of mourning over sin and in conviction. And then other leaders, it tells us, begin to gather around him and they join in the mourning. And so Ezra's response out of a conviction of sin leads the people and, and, and models for them how they need to respond to this to show them how significant of an issue this really is. At the evening sacrifice, he, he prays before the people. So it's the evening worship time, if you will, and they come together to pray, and he begins this prayer of conviction. And for some of them, this was the first they had heard about it, no doubt. And so there's this deep prayer of conviction of sin where verses 6 and 7, he begins to acknowledge they are guilty before God. And you can hear some of the people in the crowd, what do you mean we're guilty before God? Who are you talking about, you or me? Ezra recognizes the favor of God in verse 8. And in verse 9, the steadfast love of God that has remained upon them through all of these days and in all of this time. Look at verse 9. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, neither in Egypt nor in Babylonian exile. That's what he's saying. God did not forsake us even when we were under sin's discipline. But he has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. What has God done, Ezra said? He's been faithful to do what God does. That's what he's done. 
but we have not been faithful. His confession identifies the true nature of their sin. Verse 10 and 11. They've forsaken God's command by embracing the abominations of the people of the land. And this was done principally through intermarriage. What was being done? They were marrying the other peoples of the lands who represented other gods. And because of that, they were, they were not... Uh, 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 honoring God in a way that was rightful to the glory of his name, but rather through their marriage, they were embracing the other gods as equal to their God. So they were not only bearing false witness about God, but they were dividing their loyalties with other gods, trying to raise false gods to the level of our God and ultimately pulling the glory of our God down to their level. God's people have now given themselves to the worship of other gods, verse 12 tells us. And so Ezra culminates his prayer by acknowledging that God's been more gracious and merciful to them than they deserved because they had not been careful to obey his commands. And he concludes his prayer by confessing that God is right and just in his conviction. Friends, this is important. Because this is a point where people in the conviction and in reading even the word of God and the law of God, this is where people so often go, you know what, it's me versus God. Whose opinion's going to win? And so often they just dismiss God. But Ezra says, God, you are right and just. In other words, I don't have any ground to argue with you on whether you're true, right, or just. You are. He makes that confession And the people are before God in their guilt, unable to stand and without excuse. We hear the echoes of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 verse 20 when he describes people in their sin before God. He says we are without excuse because God has written the law upon our hearts. So much had been accomplished in the work that the people had done through the decades And yet what they discover here is through all of that time, so little attention had actually been given to God in their lives. They performed what they thought would satisfy God, but they didn't prioritize what God had commanded them. So Ezra cast himself before the Lord in deep conviction because of the people's sin. This is chapter 9. I want to put a pause on walking through the text for a moment and I want to talk for a moment about kind of uh, uh, zooming out and looking at what's taking place here and what has transpired throughout our series. I want to talk a little bit about a theology of mission, understanding the mission of God in the world and what is our part in the midst of that as his followers. I begin with the question, why in the world did God do this? Because I think that's a question that so many people ask about God. I mean, we understand and we can make sense of why it is that God stops bad things from happening. As a matter of fact, we often point bad things in our perspective out to God and say, God, why don't you just stop that? And if you'll stop that, everything will be better. But it causes us to ask, why isn't that God doesn't just accept what it is that people can do for him and leave well enough alone regarding what they were doing for themselves? It's a very common question to hear in pastoral ministry. People struggling not only with personal things, but sometimes things in the world. That they're, you know, why can't God just accept the good that his people have done and, and, 
those indiscretions or those little things they struggle so deeply with, why can't God just overlook them? Just move on beyond it. We argue this to God in our own life. God, is my sin really that big? No, I don't think it is. But we have to reject and neglect his word to even get to that point. And that's what Ezra wasn't doing. He said, you are just and right. But when we tell God that he should overlook what he points out in conviction of our own heart, we're telling God, you're not just and right. You're inconveniencing me. Why does he do this? Friends, God is on mission in the world for the glory of his name. From Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 21. And everything in between and everything that existed in the very nature of himself before and after that. Which are words that don't even matter in terms of eternity. There is no before and after, it just is. He's on a mission for the glory of his name. And and we see that And anything that is not true to God's glory is not worthy of his name. God's mission is not about what people do for him, but about what he has done for his people. This is so critical for us. God glorifies his name in the world by the redemption of his people. It's the heart of the gospel, friends. Therefore, people who are called by his name, who do not live in the redeeming power of God, cannot glorify his name. This is what we're seeing in Ezra. This is what we're living out in our day and time. This couldn't be more apropos for you and I today. And it leads me to another question. Does God stop the mission because of people's sin? Does God stop his mission because of the people's sin? Well, big discovery today in the headlines, breaking news. There have been people who've been committing this idolatry for generations and continuing in it, and they've done it so frivolously, they've become comfortable with it, and they don't even recognize it for themselves anymore. It seems like God halts everything until this one thing gets made right, does it not? It can seem like that in your own life when God brings conviction for sin. And when we think about mission in this manner, though, this so often seems to be the typical pattern, not just for the Israelites, but for Christians today. Well, got to stop everything so God can deal with this. Family vacation. If you don't quit, I'm going to pull this car over. It's the wrong way to think about what God is doing, though, friends. And listen to me, if we get our thinking about this wrong, we get everything wrong. Everything. When we think that what we're doing is for God instead of in response to God and God doing in and through us, we'll get everything wrong. We'll come to believe, just like the Israelites, that the indiscretions of our life, quote unquote, that's our comfortable word for sinful abominations and wickedness God's not that worried about it but that's the same ideology that believes God's not that impressed and frustrates us when we offer him our best it's not about what we are doing for God the mission of God is about what he is doing in all the world and in his people there is a right way to think about all God is doing here 
As a matter of fact, one commentator says this, that chapter 9 is central to the whole book because of the sharp contrast it draws between the people of God as it ought to be and then as it actually is. These are God's people. These are people who are holy unto God. These are people who have been set apart for his purposes. That's the very meaning of the word uh, holy. But who negligently and willfully have disobeyed without regard for God's holy commands. Oh my. We're not talking about all the grievous sins of the world. We're talking about about all the abominations of God's people. And listen, it goes to the highest level. The foremost leaders, the priests, and the Levites. No one was an exception in who was stricken by this conviction. Ezra is grief-stricken as he recognized that this This is the very reason God sent his people into exile to begin with. is because they had become so comfortable with what they were doing that was opposed to God's law that there was no other way for God to get their attention. And so he had to discipline them out of his love. But friends, here's what I want you to understand. God does not stop mission to do something different from, but rather to fulfill his purpose in mission. He is redeeming his people to display his glory in the world. When God brings conviction of sin, he is always making his people more like Jesus. And when we understand why God brings conviction of sin to individuals, but also to corporate bodies, then we can understand his true purpose for mission. And that's when we begin to understand God's not stopping mission. This is the very heart of God's mission. What God is doing with his people in chapter 9 is not getting frustrated, throwing his hands up in the air and going, when are you people ever going to learn? But it is the love of God being revealed from the righteousness of God and laboring by his redeeming power to bring righteousness in his people. You see, the purpose of serving God's mission is the glory of his name among all the peoples of the world. We talk about this, we get this right so often in our understanding. And the glory of God's name is displayed by his wonder-working power that makes death people alive that's what this was all about that's what baptism represents is that we are buried with Christ in baptism we are raised to walk in new life and the glory of God's name is displayed by his wonder-working power that forgives and cleanses from sin like when we confess our sin and God brings forgiveness to us and he cleanses us from that sin and and the glory of God's name is displayed in the world when God redeems people for his purposes to walk by faith and obedience to him the display of God's glorious name in the earth is by the redemption of his people and that's what God is doing in Ezra 9 he's redeeming his people that is his mission that is his mission God sends people on mission To make them more like him. So when they tell the world about him, the world sees how powerful and awesome not his people are, but how awesome and loving and steadfast God is. It is the greatness of God 
that we display through the redeeming power of God with our life. Serving God's mission is never about what we can do for him. It's always about all he has done for us to redeem and to make us righteous in Jesus Christ. And so God brings gracious conviction to confront sin and to lead his people to confession for the glory of his name in redemption. You see, what happens in Ezra 9 shouldn't be any surprise for us. The only reason Ezra 9 becomes a surprise or a shocker for us is because we forget about our own sinfulness and our own wickedness. We forget about how our hearts without God are only given to the darkness of sin. But for some reason, things like this always pop up and they seem to surprise us, especially when they arise in real time. And sometimes we think, oh, gotta take a pit stop here from actually the journey of God's mission because we've gotta deal with this. But I would say, no, this is the mission. You see, a lot of times we misunderstand conviction and its critical role for Christian growth in our life. But conviction is one of the first and most important lessons for the Christian to learn. And not just a lesson to learn and get over, but in other words, a a lesson that that we are continually to engage in and, and to be learning for all aspects of our life. It's essential for real gospel transformation. There will be no power of God at work in your life without conviction being the threshold to that power entering in. Conviction demonstrates God's love and grace working in you as the Holy Spirit guides you through it. Let me give you two verses to help you understand the role of conviction in pursuing God. And then I'm going to offer you three truths to encourage you to embrace God's conviction in your own life. First of all, verse number one is what I would call the purpose of conviction, where the Holy Spirit exposes sin and exposes and shows us our own guilt in breaking God's law in order to reprove us and to turn us back to God. Jesus teaches the Holy Spirit's role in John chapter 16, verse 8, when he says this, he will convict the world of sin in regards, or he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. I understand that to be three distinct aspects of conviction there. First of all, the conviction of sin. You're walking in a way that is not God's way. Either you're just rejecting, neglecting, or you're refusing, whatever the case may be. But conviction comes to us, it stops us, and it says, this is the wrong way, go that way. The Holy Spirit does that in our heart. There is another act of conviction that the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit meets the Christian in their life, not inherently walking in sin. They may be walking faithfully in some area of their life, but the Holy Spirit reveals the righteousness of God and the way that they're to move forward, maybe in a decision they're trying to make, in a circumstance that they're trying to navigate or a decision where they're trying to understand how it is that they honor God in difficult circumstances. And the Spirit of God brings conviction, brings clarity about the righteousness of God that shines light upon the way we need to make a decision or what that decision is actually to be. And so the Spirit of God, by conviction in our heart, leads us. This is the way of God. Walk ye in it. The Spirit also convicts regarding judgment. What is judgment? Judgment's what happens when we don't walk in God's way. Why does the Spirit bring conviction? Because of conviction specifically regarding judgment. Because you and I have this 
horrific tendency when the conviction of God comes to say, that's a good word, God. I'm going to get to that. I'm going to put it right here on my task list. Your number 42.B3A. You're like 42.3? Yeah, if you organize your task list, what I'm saying is you put it way down on the list and God says it should go to the top. Don't worry about doing anything else till you get this done first. That's what the conviction of judgment is. What it looks like to walk outside of God's will. It gives us the urgency of our obedience by faith. That's the purpose. The second verse that I offer you today is what I would call the feeling of conviction. The feeling of conviction. We're going to all get in touch with our feelings here for just a moment. This is the one feeling I think we ought to be most in touch with. I'm going to re return to it and revisit it in just a moment. But in the feeling, I would describe it as a bone-throbbing grief-strickenness that breaks the hardness and turns us to God. You know, there's a lot of different ways to demonstrate a hard heart. Some do it outwardly, some do it inwardly. Some do it uh, uh, with great grandeur and others with great um, specul- uh, not speculation, but uh, subversiveness. But the feeling of conviction is one that strickens the emotions. It's one that strickens the mind. It often strickens the body. There is a physical ramification often to the feeling of God's conviction. And there are a number of ways I could point to in the New Testament that point this out. But I'm going to not do that for our time today. But most importantly, it's spiritual. And spiritual is an all-consuming, comprehensive engagement. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. I use this verse, and I'll use another one in just a moment, but I use this verse here to point out the nature of grief when death is settling into our souls, our heart, our mind, and our bodies. And and when grief settles into us, it affects us in ways that we often cannot uh, uh, fully sometimes identify, but we surely fully can't control. It has a control over us. And that's why I call this the feeling of conviction, because conviction kind of overtakes the whole person. And that's what the role of conviction is to serve for us. And so what, what I want to move to now is these three truths to embrace God's gracious conviction. Recognizing he loves us and this is the wonder working power of God's redeeming love in us. When his conviction by Holy Spirit comes to us. So I implore us today, learn to embrace godly conviction first of all. Because conviction comes from God to lead us back to him. There is no way to God absent of conviction. It is the threshold for us to enter into the presence of God where we make confession out of which we make confession to agree with God. You see, conviction is God's wonder-working power in us to produce godly righteousness within us by its full work. Conviction identifies sins from God's commands by revealing where we love sin more than God's provision. 
and where we substitute his glory for lesser glory. That's what verses 1 and 2 of Ezra 9 says. The people have not separated themselves. They have mixed with the people of the land. And what he is saying there is they have looked at the God who has been steadfast in his love, who is right and just and merciful and gracious, and said, you know what? We found some other gods that we think are equal to you. Even though they've not done for us what you have, and they have nothing to prove it. They've mixed with the people of their land. In their worship, they've given their hearts to things that are not true of God, but to things that are false substitutes for God. God's plan has been clearly given in his word. That's why the whole of Ezra and the whole of Ezra's ministry, even throughout Nehemiah, will be to center the people on God's word. So the power of God can be at work in his people, but the people kept substituting a lesser glory of their own plan. And this conviction that comes from God to lead us back to him not only identifies sin, but it reveals the scope of sin by our own involvement and sometimes by sin's pervasiveness within us so that nothing is hidden. Everything will be laid bare before God. This is what we know. There will be no sin that remains hidden. And this is what is taking place in Ezra 9. When Ezra first hears the word, he is stricken by conviction, but it's just like a tsunami that continues to wash over him. And as the conviction deepens and his severity increases, he begins to realize how pervasive this sin is, how extensive this sin is, and the scope of it is not that it's just arisen recently, but it has remained from generation to generation, and Ezra is being overwhelmed by the fact of, oh God, are you going to take us back into exile? This is what got us there in the first place. Have we not learned? How have we overlooked? Why have we put up with? See, when you come under conviction, God is gracious to reveal the full involvement of people, sometimes of places or circumstances or attitudes or ideologies. He does this so that we know how it is and where it is specifically that redemption must be pursued where the wonder-working power of God wants to work in our life. Conviction identifies sin, reveals the scope of it, but it also shows the depth of the offense against God and even how it affects other people. That's what we see in verse 2. One great topic of debate among Christians has always been, well, my sin only affects me. And Ezra says, no, it doesn't. The reason you think that is because you're fully given to it. You're ruled by it. You're mastered by your sin. You're deceived by the darkness of it. Sin never only affects you, no matter how privately it may be committed. The Bible teaches that clearly your sin never only affects you. Immediately it may seem that way, but even through you, it's affecting others. The conviction that comes from God to lead us back to him stills us before God, listen to me, to stop us from continuing in sin and destruction And the clarity comes in hearing from God through conviction when we humble ourselves. Listen to me. I said it stills us before God to stop our sin from continuing. I didn't say it stopped the sin. That's what you do with conviction as to whether sin stops or not. 
but it stills us before God to stop us from continuing in sin. Clarity comes in hearing from God through conviction when we humble ourselves to receive him. Think about your weekly rhythm of life. When you come into a worship service like this and you give your heart and mind to focus on, on God and what he has for you and you're attending your heart to the spirit of God and you're attending your mind to the word of God and you're worshiping God and you're entering into his presence, the Holy Spirit is active and at work. And listen to me, friends, if you walk out of here and there's never an ounce of conviction in your heart, you've missed the whole point. You're not that person. None of us are. Like I said, this is the mission of God. The display of his glory by the redemption of his people. And one of the ways he does that is to graciously and lovingly bring his conviction to call us out of sin and to call us in righteousness. That's what conviction is all about. So it stills us to stop us. And, and you can come in here and, and you can think about everything else that's going on in the world and everything else that's been going on in your life and you can walk out and go, I'm not sure at all what went on in that room this morning. And you know what you did? You just said no to the conviction of the Spirit to not give yourself to attend to the priority of God in your life. You just went through a rhythm, a routine. That's all. Just as we sang and as I prayed about God never changes and, and how it is that we need to still ourselves before him and submit our heart and our mind to him so that he can, as the psalmist says, search us and try us and see if there be any way in us that is not according to his will. We're inviting the spirit to bring conviction because we know that through it we enter more deeply into the presence and the fullness of God. You not just need to learn to tolerate it. You need to grow a hunger and a thirst for God's conviction. Recognizing how it is that God wants to use it. Because listen friends, when you ignore God's conviction, there's a little part of your heart you're searing towards God. You know what I mean by searing? You know, often a medical procedure will be to carterize something so that it doesn't continue to... To, to bleed or, or, or whatever the case may be. And that's, that's what happens. You burn that moment where you say to God, no, not here, not in this way, not today. You sear that element, that aspect, that area of your heart to God. And you cut off that communication in that instance. Is that forever? It can be if the pattern continues. Praise God, he's Jehovah Rapha. He heals even our seared hearts. When we turn to him. Don't do that. But conviction comes from God and leads us to God. Because our confession of that, listen to me, often becomes a clarification for others. Look at what happens when Ezra begins to speak and respond and confess out of the conviction. He has other leaders that gather around him. <laughs> Maybe you've been in a conversation with a, a Christian before and, and they begin to talk to you about a sin in their own heart or in their own life that they've struggled with and you realize almost to a distracting level that that sin is not yours but there is another one that does the same effect upon you. And you begin to go, mm, I think this is why James tells us to confess our sins one to the other. He's not talking about an open mic where everybody gets up and bemoans and whines about it. 
He's talking about an honest, authentic, vulnerable connection where we confess our sins because the conviction of God is leading us in that way and we are desperately wanting to see the redeeming power of God at work in our heart and in our life in that way. You see, when under conviction, we're left only to turn to God, but under conviction, we know we always can. That's a difference between conviction and condemnation. God grows godly character in his people through conviction by leading us back to him for his redeeming power to work in us. That's the first truth. Conviction comes from God to lead us to God. Truth number two is to learn to embrace godly conviction because conviction reveals sin's full measure and reminds us of God's goodness and grace. It reveals sin's full measure and reminds us of God's goodness and grace. It shows us the acuteness of the intensity and the depth of sin's damaging effects on life. And with its growing devastations, shame and guilt and defeat and oppression and slavery and plundering of life, all these things that that sin produces up in us and heaps upon us and compounds within us. And what conviction does is it reveals the way that our sin is affecting us in our attitudes towards other people, in our actions as we walk out and live, that we're, we're actually taking actions to coddle our sin. And, 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 and in the midst of that, we're doing things that we know we shouldn't be doing, but only so that we can get back to what we know we shouldn't be doing, our sin. And the guilt that we feel from that and the shame that it brings to us, it it tells us at once, oh, that was the last time. This time you'll be better. It'll feel right and you won't have that. And the moment you commit that sin against, it's compounded incalculably with a you stupid idiot. What were you thinking? Actually, I was thinking what I just thought you told me, a false promise. But listen, when conviction comes, it shines the light on that. And it it teaches us not only that our outward actions are coddling our sin, but our inward inclinations as well. And our very thought patterns and the desires of our heart are longing for the things that are not from God, but the things that the world is promising us that it will never provide to us, but we keep buying into it. And sin begins to program our heart and our mind to desire things that destroy us and to seek out things that condemn of God's glory that shines into our heart by the conviction of the Holy Spirit through the seed of his word that is put within us. You see, friends, listen, conviction allows you to feel the weight of God's judgment without experiencing the punishment of it. You want to know how much God loves you? Conviction allows you to feel the weight of God's judgment without experiencing the punishment of it. Psalm 32, verses 3 through 5, I return to this feeling of conviction. Listen to what the psalmist says and understand the, the, the emotional, the mental, and the physical aspects of godly conviction. When I kept silent... In other words, when I said, not today, God, the psalmist says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. My whole body ached. And it didn't just ache at times, it throbbed to the core. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. He said, listen, I know why my body was aching. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Verse five, I acknowledge my sin to you. Confession 
birthed out of godly conviction. I did not cover my iniquity knowing you can't because just like in Genesis, when we try to cover our own iniquities, it's the pathetic leaf clothes that God takes off of us so that he might provide a sufficient cover for us in Christ. I said, the psalmist says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You see, friends, conviction reveals sin's full measure, but it also reminds us of God's goodness and grace in the midst of it. In conviction, hope is revealed in contrast to our sin through the gospel. And sin is always revealed by God's perfect law, but the law is powerless to do anything about it. That's what Paul teaches us. Hebrews chapter seven, verse 19 says, the law made nothing perfect. It just told us what was imperfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. You see, conviction clarifies our own personal responsibility without destroying our identity. Here again, we see a deep contrast from condemnation to conviction because the first thing condemnation does is goes, that was the dumbest thing you've ever done. You're a total idiot. God couldn't love you because he wouldn't love you in the midst of this. That's what condemnation says to us every consistent time. It destroys us as people. But you know what conviction says? You were created in the image of God. You were a person created to have a relationship with God and he sent his only begotten son to die in your place so that you could have that relationship. And every time you make the choice to disobey, to, disobey, to ignore or neglect his law and to walk in your own way, You make a choice to live outside of God's intended design for you. But because of Jesus Christ, you don't have to stay there. And when you hear the conviction, the invitation to come back is right there with it. You see, he's building your identity by every conviction of sin, not destroying it. That's what conviction does. Thirdly, learn to embrace godly conviction by uh, this third truth. Conviction leaves us without excuse before God but always hoping and trusting in him. What does conviction do? It shows us that we have forsaken God. That's why Paul writes in Romans 1.20, we are without excuse. This is what Ezra is teaching us here. Conviction brings us to the point because until we stop the excuses, we can never be with God. When God in conviction puts our sin right in front of our face, we've got to decide, am I going to own this? Not, you cannot ask, can I do anything about it? The answer is already obvious. You can't or you would have. Am I going to own it or am I going to deny it? And conviction leads us to the only place to meet with God. Look at verse 15. Lord, you're just, you're right. That means we're without excuse. Behold, we are before you in our guilt for no one can stand before you because of this. No one. This prayer of conviction resonates within each one of us, friends. When we respond to godly conviction in humility and surrender, we always find his steadfast love and grace for us. When we ignore it, we choose his punishment and judgment. My question to you today is this, and I'll ask the worship team to go ahead and return. What are you doing with godly conviction in your life? Are you learning to ask God to teach you 
what it is and when it comes and how it is that you need to respond to it? Are you just denying it? Making light of the things that God's given instruction to that need to be of first importance to us, regardless of what area of your life it's in. Listen, Christian, if today you find your life in a point, in a place where God's conviction to whatever extent, in whatever way, in whatever measure is upon you, stop and deal with it. Don't keep going. Stop and realize this is the purpose of God for your life right now, right here, right in this. Let God do his redeeming work in your life and bring a glory to his name that he desires to do in you. Let me pray for you and then we'll sing.